Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live in Abu Dhabi, I'm Eleni Jarkas. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. Now, Vladimir Putin signing laws to claim the annexation of four Ukrainian regions into Russia, even as Ukrainian forces retake more of the territory that he's claiming. A live report from Kyiv in just a moment. On Wall Street, U.S. stock futures are lower right now, and that's after a big two-day rally. So you can see the Dow Jones down around 1%. Um, the Dow actually jumped nearly 3% yesterday, closing above 30,000. It's risen more than in 1,500 points this week alone, it's the best two-day performance we've seen since April of 2020. Now, European stocks all in the red as well today, giving back some of the gains that they made on Tuesday. But our top story, a 22% rally for Twitter yesterday after Elon Musk's abrupt abrupt $44 billion U-turn. Let's remind ourselves how we got here. To buy or not to buy, or just go back to the beginning. Elon Musk spent months trying to buy Twitter and then tried to get out of the deal. Now it looks like he's back in. In a major reversal Tuesday, the Tesla CEO revived his proposal to buy the company at the original price of $54.20 per share. The two sides were heading to court over Musk's attempt to terminate the buy. Now, a Twitter spokesperson tells CNN that it will close the deal, provided that the lawsuit is dropped. Donny O'Sullivan joins me now with more details. Donny, I tell you, I saw this tweet and I was like, oh, not again. But we shouldn't actually be surprised. There's one thing that the Tesla CEO is good at is just flip-flopping around, changing his mind and basically shocking the market. But is there a sense that this is it and perhaps running away from court proceedings? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's those core proceedings uh, that play into all of this. Uh, Twitter and Musk, uh, of course, were due to go to trial in Delaware uh, in about two weeks' time. Um, so this all coming before that. But, you know, really, it's this it's a, this kind of will they, won't they, on again, off again uh, scenario uh, where we're seeing uh, Musk saying he wants to do it, then fighting for months to get out of it and now saying uh, that he wants to be back in it again. How it's all going to play out, it really comes down to um, a lot of it is going to be on how the, how the deal works out. But of course, how um, this court in Delaware, what the judge says about um, th- th- this case, uh, Twitter, for its part, has said that they want to go ahead with the deal. They want Musk uh, to take over the company. Um, aside from, you know, just the business side of this, this could have huge, of course, political uh, ramifications, uh, not least here in the United States. Uh, Everybody knows, of course, that former President Donald Trump has been permanently, uh, or at least we thought permanently, banned uh, from Twitter. Uh, But here, uh, take a listen to what Elon Musk had to say about that back in May. I I do think that uh, uh, it was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was was a mistake. I would reverse the perma ban. 
So he says that if he were to take over Twitter, which he very well now might, uh, that he would let Trump back uh, on the platform. Um, and of course, he also said there that, that he's against uh, what is called uh, permanent bans entirely uh, in most cases, uh, meaning that, you know, uh, figures around the world, uh, particularly many on the, on the right side of, on the right wing side of the political spectrum, uh, may find themselves back with access uh, to their accounts. Um, all of this uh, for Twitter employees, many of whom, some of whom I spoke to uh, yesterday, I, mean, I think they're, they're really tired. This has been a, a real roller coaster. I want to show you uh, a tweet from uh, one employee uh, who posted yesterday, uh, living the plot of succession is effing uh, exhausting. And I think that really sums up, um, you know, a lot of concern within the company about what all yeah. of this will mean. Of course, for some people, Musk supporters, uh, it's good news. They want to see what he could do with the company. Uh, he tweeted last night saying uh, that this is on his way to building uh, the X app, which is um, his vision of a type mm. of WeChat app uh, in, in for the West, which, uh, you know, where people can do everything, a one-stop app uh, for, for all products and services. Yeah, and, and you rightly said this on-off-again relationship that we've been witnessing seems really unhealthy, but I wonder if it's going to be uh, the marriage that both sides expect. I mean, I think the markets are excited seeing what the Tesla, uh, what the Twitter uh, share price was doing as well. Doni, always good to speak to you. Thank you so very much for joining us. That was Doni O'Sullivan. And we head to Ukraine now. Vladimir Putin signed laws earlier claiming to annex four regions of Ukraine into Russia. And the Kremlin says that processes will move forward, even though its army keeps retreating. The Ukrainian leader in one region, Luhansk, says the deoccupation has begun. President Vladimir Zelensky says Ukrainian troops are making a fast and powerful advance in the south. CNN's Fred Pleiken is live in Kyiv. Uh, Fred, really good to see you. Um, you're, we're hearing that Ukraine is able to uh, take back some of the territories. Could you give me a sense of what the front lines are looking like in the newly annexed regions mm. and how the front lines perhaps are shifting, changing, and are we seeing a change in dynamics? I think we're seeing a big change in dynamics, Elaine. And I think one of the things that's really remarkable about all this is that, you know, over the past couple of months or so, we were talking about the Ukrainians possibly launching smaller counteroffensives against the Russians. But what you're seeing right now is really large-scale counteroffensives by the Ukrainians in several areas of the front line. You have in the east of the country, uh, around that area of the strategic uh, town of Liman, which the Ukrainians, of course, took a couple of days ago. They've continued to advance from there and are threatening some of the big Russian strongholds that are sort of behind uh, Liman, in including some of the logistics areas that are extremely important uh, for the Russians to keep those areas uh, under their control. So the Russians certainly acknowledging that they're on the back foot. Of course, Luhansk, um, which that Ukrainian governor was talking about, that's one of those areas that the Ukrainians really want to get into because the Russians obviously have had what they call that referendum. They say that that's now an area of Russia. If the Ukrainians can continue to get a foothold in the Luhansk district, that certainly would be a big blow to the Kremlin as well. And then you have the South, and there, I think even the Ukrainians are pretty surprised at the rate that they've been able to take territory back from the Russians. They're obviously trying to get to the main town there, which is called Kherson. It's one of the first areas that the Russians were able to take when they invaded Ukraine in February. And the Ukrainians really are making a lot of headway in trying to do that. They're sort of moving in from the administrative district of Kherson, the northern part of it, and trying to move south 
health. And just in the latter part of uh, yesterday, they said that they'd taken and managed to take several very important towns and villages uh, in their quest to try and win back as much of that territory as they can. And I think one of the really interesting things that we've been noticing is obviously we're hearing a lot from the Ukrainian side, Eleni, but we're also hearing uh, a lot from the Russian side as well about them being quite downbeat about the way things are going, especially Kremlin-controlled media, where you do have some frontline journalists there in uh, in Ukraine for Russian media, but also some commentators very openly speaking about the fact that the Russians are in retreat, that they believe the mobilization that they're conducting right now will not happen in time to fend off some of these offensives. So really quite a gloomy mood as you look at it uh, in Moscow, even as the Kremlin tries to project uh, the strength and tries to continue to say uh, that they are going to take back uh, some of the territory that they're losing right now. It, Certainly, at the moment, it really seems as the momentum is very firmly on the Ukrainian side, Eleni. All right, Fred Plankin, thank you very much um, for that update. Now, taking a look at the oil market now, prices higher this session ahead of a key meeting of oil ministers. Brent crude is trading at around $92 a barrel. OPEC and its allies, including Russia, meet in Vienna today to discuss slashing production to boost prices. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, I, I have to tell you, you know, when we were talking about um, an oil deficit and who would be filling in that gap, there was sort of a scramble a few months ago. Now OPEC plus countries are saying they want to cut production. What is the thinking behind this? And if we look at the oil price, where is that sweet spot where it kind of makes sense for producers? Well, in terms of the simplest answer to what's going on and why OPEC Plus are looking to cut output already after, as you say, months of trying to increase it, well, just look at the prices. From June, where they were on $120 a barrel, they've slipped considerably and they are high on the expectation that there will be a big output cut, I think, expectation between one and two million barrels per day. So over one percent of the oil consumed around the world. I think we also have to consider the political moves going on behind the scenes as well, uh, particularly if you consider that in December, G7 countries want to impose a price cap on Russian oil. You've also got the EU who want to ban seaborne oil imports from Russia as well. That's happening again in December. And for OPEC and its allies, it's really threatened by the fact that someone's trying to take away the power of controlling oil prices. So we can see that political move there as well. Now, Russia's Deputy Prime Minister, Alexander Novak, has arrived at the meeting in Vienna that is now under away. And I think what will be so interesting is what we get out of this meeting in terms of the lines that are leaked, as well as the actual output cut announcement. Another thing to remember is actually how much OPEC plus members are able to produce, because if I can show you a chart from the output targets they set themselves on actually what they have been producing, you can see that they are undershooting it. You can see in blue there the production that they've got, but actually the quota there in red. And according to Reuters, who cite sources, OPEC and its allies missed output targets by three and a half million barrels a day back in August. So if we do get a big output cut of one to two million barrels per day, you've got to question what does that actually mean in real terms, considering uh, they're undershooting their target already. Yeah, and that's quite a gap seeing that graph. Um, Anna Stewart, thank you so very much. Right, on Wall Street, U.S. futures falling ahead of the opening bell after a big two-day rally. CNN's Mark Stewart joins me now from New York. Mark, great to see you. I have to say that um, what we've seen, when it, we take note when there is a mini rally within sort of a down market, the best days that we've seen since 2020. Do you think this is a fluke? What are people saying or do, are we expecting more upside at some, um, at some stage? 
Eleni, it very well could be a fluke. I was just looking back over the last two days as to what was happening that would give the markets a lift. But there wasn't one single moment, but rather a collection of moments that may have contributed to this boost, including some data that suggests that the U.S. Federal Reserve may not have to be as aggressive or forceful uh, in future interest rate hikes. Earlier today on CNN, we did hear from a financial planner who pointed out these types of rallies are very common during bear markets. They happen, they give the market a lift, but then we, here we are today, some of the same problems that existed before, high inflation, concern over the war in Ukraine, the list goes on and on. Those concerns very much remain. But uh, markets open in about 20 minutes, and the storyline for today is still very much to be written. Yeah. Look, the driving force we know has been sticky inflation, what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing, um, and a plethora of other data points. But for this week specifically, what would we say the drivers have been? Well, I think there have been some individual stock growths. We saw Micron see some rise because of its investment in in chips in the United States. Obviously, you were talking about Twitter. Uh, Credit Suisse saw a boost earlier because of some the fears of, of risk and its, its financial health, those have subsided. I am going to be very curious about Friday with the jobs report here in the United States. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's one of many thermometers to, to measure the temperature of the economy. Wall Street certainly is going to pay attention to it and likely the Federal Reserve. All right, Mark, great to see you. Thank you very much for that update. Coming up on First Move... We will lower our tax burden. The Conservative Party will always be the party of low taxes. The British Prime Minister doubling down on tax cuts as she defends her economic policy. The details next. British Prime Minister Liz Truss speaking at the Conservative Party conference just two days after a stunning U-turn over a tax cut for the wealthy. Truss warned of stormy days ahead and said her plans would stoke the UK economy. Listen in. I have three priorities for our economy. Growth, growth and growth. The fact is that the abolition of the 45p tax rate became a distraction from the major parts of our growth plan. That is why we're no longer proceeding with it. I get it, and I have listened. Mm, CNN's Bianca Noblo is covering the conference. She joins us now live from Birmingham. Um, Did Liz Truss, Bianca, get the reception that she wanted? Bianca, are you there? All right, I think we've lost Bianca, but we're going to try and get her back um, and we'll check in with her in just a moment. All right, joining me now, though, is former Bank of England policymaker Martin Wheel. He's also a professor at King's Business School. Martin Wheel, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Great to have you. Um, I, I have to ask you, there's been so much talking to and fro about this 45% tax cuts. Kwasi Kwarteng made it clear that um, perhaps it wasn't the right timing. We heard from Liz Truss as well. What do you make of this flip-flop? Well, there seems to me quite an element of 
uncertainty about what the government wants yeah. and very much an element of uncertainty about its political judgment. Um, I'm an economist and I suppose I just can't imagine that cutting the top rate of tax from 45p to 40p is going to do very much to stimulate economic growth. It will make people who have high incomes better off. And of course, the problem yeah. the government ran into was that it was doing that at the same time when so many people are struggling with the cost of fuel and the effects of inflation. So certainly the political judgment was very poor. And in economics, I mean, it's difficult to say what the top tax rate ought to be, but uh, it was reduced from 50p to 45p because the Treasury concluded several years ago that, that could be done without having an adverse effect on revenue and labour supply. Uh, as, a, as a former Monetary Policy Committee member, I wonder, you know, watching on from the sidelines, seeing this disconnect with the Bank of England, with economic policy coming through, do you get the sense that the BOE was as shocked with this announcement like everyone else was and then had to come in and basically use monetary policy tools to deal with the consequences? Well, I think they would say that they were providing liquidity to pension funds and that no, in conceptual terms, isn't quite the same thing as providing a monetary stimulus. Yeah. On the other hand, it did look very much like a revival of quantitative easing less than a week after they had yeah. said they wanted to embark on quantitative tightening. Uh, so yeah. it certainly looks as though the Bank of England was taken by surprise, as indeed uh, a lot of other people were. Yeah, exactly. When you're trying to tighten quantitative easing is, of course, uh, counterproductive in that scenario. Look, Liz Truss says that, you know, her economic policy is going to be about growth, growth, growth. They've said they want 2.5% GDP. Do you think they'll be able to achieve it? There are concerns that the first policy they came out with could perhaps cause stickier inflationary environment. It could increase de debt dramatically and, of course, mean that the BOE would have to be out of sync with what other central banks globally are doing. Well, it seems to me perfectly possible, although tensions in financial markets have eased in the last week, it nevertheless seems to me that we're going to have to have interest rates higher in the longer term than would otherwise have been the case because, though know, the government is regarded with some suspicion by people investing or thinking of investing in government debt. And in those circumstances, it's unlikely that you would get more growth. You might well get less growth. Of course, that said, we haven't see, actually seen what the government's supply side packages are going to be. But uh, experience from other countries that have tried things like this doesn't point to the idea that you can get a sharper and semi-permanent acceleration in the rate of economic growth. Uh, and of course, in the short term, it looks as though the government is trying to add to demand to get the economy growing at a time when the labour market is very tight, vacancies are very high, and the Bank of England has been trying to take demand out of the economy in order to bring inflation down. So that tension yeah. will have to be resolved one way or another. I have to ask you, what you think of the overall economic policy that was put on the table and while the 45% tax cuts has been put on the back burner for now, what do you think of the overall policy that is on the table? And I have to say that when we saw the markets responding so aggressively, do you believe that there's going to be a longer-term consequence 
to this decision and, and sort of the policy that they've come up with? Well, as I say, I do expect that in the medium to longer term, the for quite a while at least, the government is going to have to pay a higher interest rate on its borrowing than it would have without the episode of the last two weeks. I mean, I should also say that you know, if it does get the rate of economic growth going, if it does get it up to 2.5%, then the high levels of government spending will be quite easily affordable. But between now and the you know, release of the OBR report, we will presume, or certainly once the OBR report comes out, we will presumably get some sense of the other side of the equation, how the government expects the tax cuts to be paid for. And it seems to me very unlikely that uh, the OBR will accept the argument that they can be paid for by faster growth. Were you shocked that the IMF weighed in on this decision and the fact that many analysts said, listen, the pound has got sort of acting a bit like an emerging market currency, even though we know fundamentally it's a lot stronger. Were you surprised by the narrative around what happened? Well, I was a bit surprised that the IMF intervened in the way that it did. That's not to say that I disagree with their comments, but it was, of course, yeah. as people noted, very unusual. Right, Martin Wheel, thank you very much for joining us. Really good to see you. That was former Bank of England policymaker joining us. And we've got Bianca Noblo back for us, uh, joining us to talk all things Liz Truss at the Conservative Party conference. Uh, Bianca, you know, Liz Truss came out with a very powerful message about economic growth is what's going to define her and her party. Whether she can achieve that, of course, is going to be a big question because we've seen how the markets have responded to their messaging. But did she receive the reception that she wanted at the party conference. From her supporters, she did, Eleni. And it's interesting that you note how she's essentially hedging everything on the economy. Even her die-hard yeah. supporters that I spoke to after the speech acknowledged that this party and its electoral fortunes and Truss's leadership will live or die by what happens to the economy next. It was a workmanlike speech, which is what we've come to expect from the Prime Minister, a stronger performance than what we've seen in recent media interviews. But that bar is indeed very low. She said many times during the leadership contest and at other points that she's not a particularly strong communicator. She doesn't focus on having charisma. It's not a skill that she's really famous for. That being said, she had more energy and I was told by some in the room that she was inspiring and that there was a bit of electricity. But the key point is so many of her own MPs weren't even at the conference and plenty that I spoke to earlier on WhatsApp and on the phone said that they weren't even going to watch the speech. So I fear that she's done so much damage that for many this doesn't go any way to undoing the loss of confidence and loss of trust in her leadership. And first impressions do stick. And this first month of her premiership has been plagued with so many issues. And even though she did inherit a poison chalice, economically, circumstantially, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, war on the European continent, generally, she's not considered to have played those cards particularly well. And there's a series of unforced errors which we've seen play out this week. So, Eleni, 
She needs to do a lot more to convince her party that she is the right person for the job. Right now, one of the key factors sustaining her and stabilizing her is the fact that the Conservatives are well aware that they don't want to have five Tory leaders in six years. Clearly, that doesn't convey a party that's well organized and united to the electorate. Yeah, and look, a loss of trust is a very big issue for any politician. And when it has to do with the economy, uh, that can, of course, erode um, confidence. But, Bianca, is there a sense from the people that you speak to that you say are not there, that did not attend? Is there any way that, that her and Kwasi Kwarteng can find a way to, to get people to change their sentiment, their perception of their abilities to deliver on their economic policies? Well, it was a very peculiar tone at conference, Eleni, because, of course, you would expect a political party to always have hope. And however frustrated and angry they are, they're willing their leader and the government to succeed. And, of course, that's present and that's there. But overall, the sentiment reminded me of a government's in their last days in office, you know, similar to the downfall of Boris Johnson politically. When the party was in disarray, there was so much infighting, open rowing between members of the cabinet, MPs breaking rank, showing no party discipline and criticizing the prime minister, often many not attending. So, you know, that, that suggests a party that in some ways is resigned to this difficult political position that doesn't really believe that they're going to win the next election. The general consensus is they need to give the Prime Minister until Christmas to see what the economy does, to see how she handles these next few months, whether she's learnt the lessons of the disasters of the last week in terms of communicating better to the markets, to the public at large, taking a more conciliatory approach and approaching the party and embracing the fact that it's a broad church. If she shows progress on those aspects, then I think there could be hope. But tomorrow, Eleni, the Prime Minister is travelling to Prague to, for the inaugural meeting of the European political community, which is a grouping of European nations, to discuss how to counter Putin's aggression. She also wants to talk about the issue of migration in Britain, among others. Now, that means that she's going into that meeting of European heads of state so deeply weakened, with members of her own party questioning how long she can last, just a month into the job. So the next few weeks will be a test of whether or not she is another prime minister who is in post but not really in power. All right. Uh, Bianca Noblo, always good to see you. Thank you so very much. And still to come on First Move, could the Twitter Musk soap opera finally be coming to an end? I'll be speaking with Dan Ives about the billionaire's major about phase after the break. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Eleni Jankas in Abu Dhabi. Now, U.S. stocks opening lower today and this Wednesday following a huge two-day rally. Shares of Twitter are also down right now after surging 22% yesterday. Elon Musk has offered to close a deal to buy the company after the price he originally agreed to. The surprise move comes after he spent months trying to get out of the $44 billion deal. And joining me now to discuss this further, we have Dan Ives, Managing Director at Wedbush Securities. Dan, I have to say, I've got a bit of whiplash on this story, this sort of to and fro from Elon Musk when we you know, saw the excitement around the initial offer and then taking a step back and really being vehemently opposed to a buyout. Do you get the sense that he's feeling the pressure about 
the court proceedings that's made him rethink this move? Oh, definitely. I mean, the writing was in the wall going into Delaware in that Game of Thrones battle, which would have been a long and ugly court battle. He would have lost. I mean, he really had minimal legs to stand on. So this is really, I think, his view, path to least resistance, go ahead with the deal. Because the irony is coming out of the Delaware, he would end up in the same position, but the judge would have forced him to ultimately own Twitter at that same price. Well, keeping with the Game of Thrones uh, analogy, is winter coming for Twitter? What will Twitter look like um, under Elon Musk? Well, winter has already been here for Twitter. And you could argue it's been here for the last five years. And I think that's part of the problem is for Musk, $44 billion was just a ridiculous price. I think he got cold feet, used the bot as a scapegoat, and now... The easy part was buying Twitter. The hard part's going to be fixing it. And I think there's an uphill battle here in terms of how do you monetize it, engagement, social media. It's been a third-tier player. These are going to be all the transformations in terms of how Musk tries to take Twitter as he just bet big in terms of this $44 billion purchase. Yeah, so I know the bots were the one big issue for him. Um, I want to also talk about the fact that he's been very vocal about undoing the bans on people like Donald Trump or not allowing bans in the future. Is that going to be uh, an issue, do you think, for market participants watching sort of how Twitter will evolve under Elon Musk's leadership? Yeah, I think there's a laser focus if he lets Trump back on, because it's not just about Trump, it's Mm. about that cascade and what that means for the Twitter platform in terms of as Musk originally the way it started was free speech. But ultimately, this could really cascade and have a ripple effect that could really taint the Twitter platform that he just is spending $44 billion on. And I think this started as something that as an initiative. But ultimately, I think as Musk dug more into it, he did get buyer's remorse. But once you sign those documents legally, he has to own it. Now he essentially owns a house that he doesn't want. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to talk about what the the Twitter share price, you know, has been doing. We saw a 22% spike yesterday. It's down slightly today. It seems that market participants want this deal to go through. Yeah. Now it's all about Twitter board. Do do they ultimately remove their lawsuit in Delaware and let this go ahead? Because this could get done potentially by next week. There's some worries about the financing, just given what's happened in the debt markets. But ultimately, that's more the bank's problem than Musk's problem. I believe potentially by next week that Musk will own Twitter. Yeah, I mean, look, and, and if I'm looking at the share price, it's $50 a share, 50.84. Um, and he'd be paying more than what the share price is right now. Do you think he's going to be overpaying? Well, I think he's overpaying because the $44 billion, I think the fair value of Twitter is probably closer to 25 to $30 billion. So he's essentially, in terms yeah. of selling his Tesla stock to buy Twitter, it's like he's basically taking caviar and buying $2 slices of pizza in Twitter. That's always why there was no other bidder. And that's going to be the big gargantuan problem for Musk going forward, turning this around. Dorsey and others have had major difficulty. I think that's really going to be the question in terms of Twitter. But ultimately, he's going to have to buy this at 5420, potentially by next week. Yeah. I mean, is it a good time to buy Twitter, would you say, if you're watching on, anticipating that this is going to finally come to a close? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's our view. Our view here, there's an ARB spread to some word that the deal could fall apart. There could be another sort of shooter drop. You know, we yeah. believe this is ultimately a stock that will be at 5420, you know, as it goes into next week. And now it really comes down to everyone's waiting for Twitter board to accept because they're snake bit. This is not exactly a candlelight dinner between Twitter and Musk in terms of what yeah. you expect. So I think they're going through <laughs> everything to make sure that this is real. I think no candles in this uh, dinner meeting. Uh, thank you so very much, Dan Ives. Thank Always you. good to see you. Managing Director and Analyst at Wedbush Securities. Right, coming up after the break, higher gas prices are not a good look for the Biden administration as it heads into the midterm elections. The American Petroleum Institute says there's plenty more the president could and should be doing. That's coming up next. Returning to today's big OPEC Plus meeting where ministers will discuss cutting production, that would be a set-up confrontation with the United States and others who want to see supplies increase and not decrease. The American Petroleum Institute wants the Biden administration to come up with ways to address the imbalance between growing demand and constrained supply. The API says that would erode OPEC's impact on the market. Mike Summers is the group's president and CEO and joins me now. Mike, thank you so much. I, I want to just talk about literally how we're on the cusp of OPEC plus countries cutting supply. And I think that, you know, when we've seen this enormous roller coaster of what supply dy- dy- demand dynamics would look like taking Russia out of the equation, it has been difficult to figure out where we actually stand, minus the speculation and minus the volatility. Yeah, I, I do think every consumer should be concerned about what OPEC announced today. But at the same time, we should be focused on ensuring that the United States can produce as much oil and gas as possible. We have a choice. We can do that here in the United States if we get the policies right. And we've put forward a plan at the American Petroleum Institute to do just that. Um, Let's talk about the impact of a decision with OPEC plus countries and what that would mean for the American consumer directly. I mean, that would mean higher uh, crude prices, but what would the feed through be? Well, I think the concern is, is that they're going to take about 2 million barrels of oil off the world market. We have to remember that Mm. the world consumes about 100 million barrels of oil every single day. The United States is currently producing about a million barrels less than we did pre-pandemic. And a lot of that is because of some policy choices that the Biden administration has made. In fact, right now, they're actually considering stopping development of the United States Gulf of Mexico uh, for oil and gas development. That should be a huge concern to every American voter and world consumers as well, because we pay uh, world prices for our oil and gas. So the concern that we have is that if we don't get the policies right here in the United States, world consumers are going to continue to suffer from high energy prices. Um, because you've said that you want the Biden administration to come up with other ways to, to deal with the imbalance. Would you say that money flowing into big mega projects is one of those solutions, despite the climate change agenda, which is also just as important? Well, we know from multiple studies that we are underinvesting in oil and gas right now by more than $100 billion mm. to meet future demand for energy. 
Uh, almost every uh, uh, independent source suggests that we're going to be using a lot of oil and gas into the future. In fact, even the International Energy Agency suggests that 50% of our energy needs are going to come from oil and gas, even if every country meets its goals under the Paris Climate Accords. So this industry needs, needs to continue to get investment so that we can supply the energy that the world needs. We want to make sure that that investment continues. Uh, but we have to get the policies right here in the United States because we have the resources here to supply the world with the energy that it needs. And again, dependency on foreign regimes for, for American energy is a choice. And it's a choice that we don't have to make if we get the policies right. Okay, I, I want to talk about the, the current situation because, you know, the, the future projects and investing in future projects will have an impact down the line on oil and gas prices. It's not a today, um, you know, full, full impact what would you expect today for the Biden administration to do to ease uh, the impact of higher gas prices? Well, first of all, they could signal to American producers and American consumers that they're going to continue development of the Gulf of Mexico, which is an important resource and provides uh, almost 20 percent of American oil and gas. Do you think so that's, that's going to have a direct impact on prices today? Like what, what kind of impact would you say that will have on gas prices today? Should that what announcement would, be what made? What I would say is is that it is, a, it is a signal to Wall Street and investors that this is mm. a, a resource that we're going to continue to invest in. And that's important. The other thing that we've done here at the American Petroleum Institute is we put together a plan. It's called the 10 and 22 plan that your viewers can find at 10and22.org. And that plan essentially says uh, that there are 10 policies that we can implement now to ensure American energy security and to lower costs for American consumers. Some of those things are about permitting reform. There's been a big debate in the United States Senate over the course of the last few weeks about how to get permitting reform right, not just for oil and gas, but also for renewables, which are going to need uh, federal permitting reform if, if they're going to get that renewable build-out done. So we want to work with all sources of energy to supply the, the energy that the world needs. Uh, but we need to get pipelines built in, th in this country in particular to get the energy from where it is to where it needs to be to be refined. Yeah. All right, Max Summers, thank you very much uh, for taking the time today. Much appreciated. President and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. And still to come, a new look at LVMH after dark. We'll hear from Antoine Arnaud, the son of the founder and the CEO of the Roluti brand on efforts to save energy. Welcome back. In a global energy crisis, soaring costs for fuel continue to put pressure on both households and businesses. Last month, luxury group LVMH announced its plan to cut energy consumption in its stores. Julia Chatterley spoke with LVMH's communications director and the CEO of Berluti, Antoine Arnaud, about the firm's commitment to sustainability and some ambitious goals for the future. Our stores used to stay open, at least the windows, I'm sorry, of our stores used to stay, stay open and the lights to stay open all night. We, we thought it was uh, beautiful. It uh, represents, it, you know, it's in, in France, in Paris. It represents uh, uh, beauty, fashion. It's in the city of lights. It's important to, um, uh, it was important to continue to, uh, to show that, uh, you know, our, our brands, our maisons are, are alive. But uh, recent events made us uh, change our mind and, uh, and decide to shut those down at 10 p.m. And um, in terms of temperature in the stores to increase by one degree or decrease by one degree 
uh, whether it's summer or, or winter and, uh, and heating or air conditioning. Uh, and it makes one degree seems like a, a little uh, step, but it's actually uh, uh, in terms of energy savings, it's actually a little bit more than 10% of our, of our energy that's going to be saved. It's not to uh, save uh, money from uh, our side, but more to save energy and to uh, try to be a little bit more compliant and responsible considering what's, uh, what's going on in Europe. Just one quick word about um, how we see sustainability. First of all, it's not a topic that's been uh, new to us. Huh? It's in 1992 uh, that my father, Bernard Arnault, decided to create a sustainability de uh, department in LVMH when uh, that topic at the time was really definitely not uh, in the headlines. I read today the group uses 100% green electricity in France, 39% renewable energy globally. And you're saying that you want to achieve 100% supply of renewable or low carbon energy for all sites. So we're talking workshops, stores and offices by, by 2026. I mean, you're a, you're a wealthy company. You're a private company. To your point, you don't have to make any disclosures. You choose to. Um, these are ambitious targets. They are ambitious targets. But can you be more ambitious? I'm always going to push. <laughs> uh, you can always be more ambitious. Um, it's, it's really a question of finding the right balance. You know, you also want to continue to uh, motivate your troops and, uh, and not make them uh, think that we suddenly became uh, uh, activists. And um, my role is uh, a little bit in that, uh, in that uh, field. And I'm, I'm walking that, uh, that thin line where I try to, as a CEO, push my employees at Berluti to always do more, try to find the right ideas, but at the same time be responsible. For Notre Dame, uh, maybe you've, uh, you've seen also that uh, LVMH and my family has made a, a significant donation. When the Amazonian forests started burning, we, we were there as well and uh, partnered with UNESCO to, to uh, uh, try to uh, reforest. I mean, we're not humanitarians and we're businessmen, but we try to be present. Right, with a portfolio of 75 brands from Dior, Louis Vuitton, to Moet, Ejrandon and Tiffany's and over 5,000 500 stores via LVMH is a world leader in luxury. At the helm is chairman and CEO Bernard Arnault. He created the group back in the 1980s and has been adding to the portfolio ever since. Antoine Arnault told Julia about the values his father instilled in him and his siblings and the legacy his family is creating. It's really not a matter of, of wealth. I mean, we were educated with very strong and strict uh, education and strong values around uh, the, the, of course, the, the value of working, uh, the value of uh, things you buy, and uh, and not at all with uh, an education that you could, you know, imagine people who do have this sort of wealth uh, live. It's uh, very important, and I educate my children uh, in the same way, and uh, and so does uh, so does my wife. It's uh, essential. So. Um, so what we do see and, and how we feel about it is that we need to continue doing what we do best, which is, uh, you know, developing companies. That's what I think uh, we do very well. That's what my father has done in the past a little bit more than, than 40 years um, <laughs> with uh, incredible success. And, uh, and we are, you know, super, super proud of that and, uh, and also proud that he uh, enables us to uh, have this little bit of a journey with him.
he may have been doing it for 40 years, but he's um, he's still very young. And you've led me on to the question now, which obviously I was going to have to ask, mm -hmm. which is um, succession. And if I know um, any founders mm -hmm. like your father of their age too, the word retirement is most definitely not in their vocabulary. But I, I just wondered whether you as a family, because you're all doing your own thing within within the businesses, too. Do you ever discuss it? Is it important mm -hmm. at this moment in time? I know a lot of people around the scenes discuss it, but but do you guys? No, um, I mean, mm. no. Yes and no. Uh, of course, we we um, uh, understand the level of responsibility that is ours and that will one day be ours in a uh, hopefully very distant future. Um, however, um, the way we see things is that my father is super healthy. Uh, he's uh, 73 and uh, going to work I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Who knows? I, we have a very good friend who's 94 and who runs his company in France uh, uh, <laughs> like he's a young man. So if that happens, uh, that would be great. And what we are doing right now is we're um, working all together. His five children are now working uh, together in different parts of the group, but we're very close to him and very close together uh, as a family. So, you know, it's uh, uh, a long journey also ahead, but uh, the longer we'll be with him, helping him and making him and being proud and making him proud of, of what he's, uh, he's done and continuing to, to make LVMH uh, so great, it will be uh, it will be a fun one. <laughs> I'm sure he says you guys are likely to retire before I do. <laughs> Antoine. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right, and finally on First Move, if all does go well, NASA will make history today by sending the very first Native American person into the Earth's orbit. Former Marine Nicole Mann is also said to become the very first woman to command a SpaceX flight. The Falcon 9 rocket will blast off from Florida's Kennedy Space Center in about two hours' time, the crew of four heading to the International Space Station for a five-month stay. Well, that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jokos in Abu Dhabi. Thank you so very much for watching. Connect the World is up next. Take care. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.